This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. There needs to be more of that. Mm-hmm. There yeah. needs to be more of that. N- number one, not taking pleasure or satisfaction in other people's suffering. And two, actually feeling some of that suffering of other people and not just saying, well, it's them or good. You know, they deserve it. And, and that it needs to be more of a, a, a mutual understanding. And the more we go back to the point of understanding, communicating with each other, understanding each other, knowing why we're doing and saying what we're saying, not just knee-jerk reacting to it, the more we're likely to do that. We don't have to look at other people failing or suffering for us to succeed or feel good. In fact, if they do, we should feel less good. So we are, we're all in this together. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, and I am so glad to be with you again. Thank you for joining us for a special God Squad at Night, recorded live at WFSU Studio. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. It's www.floridahumanities.org. This special edition of the long-running series, God Squad, starts with a discussion of a recent essay by one of my absolute favorite writers, David Brooks. It was a piece he wrote for The Atlantic titled, How Americans Got Mean. You've probably heard the expression, hurt people hurt people. Meaning people who are hurting, who are sad and lonely, are more likely to perpetuate the pain that they themselves are feeling. So this sounds like a job for Superman, uh, or <laughs> in our case, a whole panel of super people, also known as Village Square's God Squad. In truth, I think each member of this panel would readily admit that they're not actually superheroes, but they are our wonderful friends in this endeavor in naming some of what ails us as a culture, what many of us are feeling individually, as well as what each of us can do individually and collectively to address these interrelated problems of an angry civic life, a lack of a sense of belonging, widespread extremism, and even outbreaks of violence. In this discussion, we'll explore the God Squad's diagnosis of these problems, but also some good prescriptions so we can move forward in a more healthy civic life together. With that, I'll turn it over to Tom Flanagan, Program Director of WFSU News, who introduces our program and this terrific panel. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Tom Flanagan, Program Director for WFSU News. And on behalf of WFSU Public Media, 
and the Village Square, we are delighted to welcome you to God Squad at Night, Ending the Cycle of Mean. And this program is part of the now 14-year-old God Squad series offered by the Village Square in partnership with faith leaders from across our community. Tonight's program is streaming live on Facebook via WFSU Public Media and the Village Square's Facebook pages. It is now my pleasure to turn it over to tonight's facilitator, the Reverend Dr. Latricia Scriven, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And Latricia will be telling us who else is joining her on the platform. I'm going to have each person introduce themselves on the platform, starting to my immediate left. Gary Schultz, I'm the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Tallahassee. I'm Joseph Davis, senior pastor of Truth Gathers Dream Center Church here in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm Pastor Betsy Willett Zierden, newly retired from a variety of different churches, <clears throat> um, most recently St. George Island. I'm Paul Sidlowski, I'm the rabbi at Temple Israel in Tallahassee. I'm Father Tim Holita. I'm the rector of the Co-Cathedral of St. Thomas More. So this is the God Squad, everybody. We are so grateful that you're here with us this evening as we talk about ending the cycle of mean. I want you to know that this conversation was actually inspired by an article that was in the Atlantic by David Brooks, and it was entitled How America Got So Mean. And he begins um, his article by saying that over the last eight years or so, he has been obsessed, his word, obsessed with about two questions. The first question is, why are Americans so sad? And the second question was, why are Americans so mean? And so we're going to begin there. I want to ask the God Squad, anybody can go first. Do you agree with this premise? of Brooks that America is getting meaner. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. I think, um, of course, it's a lens. It doesn't mean everyone we deal with is getting meaner, but I think overall we have some, a trend um, that's very powerful that if we don't pay attention to it, uh, bring it to circles of, uh, of conversation, community, um, we, we're in trouble. Um, people are getting sadder and people are with that sadness or what I call uh, being lost. It's a sense of being lost, um, uh, being lost in the world that's going around them. Um, they are, the emotion is, is me becoming me. So yes, I, I agree with the article as well. Okay. All right. Anybody else? I, I would agree with that. I think. I think Brooks makes his point, and I appreciate how he does tie those two things together, being sad and being mean. The loneliness, the, the bitterness, the, the, the way that people no longer experience a sense of belonging or a sense of community in our culture anymore has, has driven, I don't think there's any doubt, a coarsening of what's going on. If we see this in our discourse, we see this in our politics, we all have probably seen it in our faith communities. We've experienced it. Social science bears this out. I don't think there's any doubt that Brooks is correct. All right. It wasn't just a, yesterday, maybe, that the suicide yeah. statistics were released. Yeah. Yeah. It was frightening. Um, yeah. And a correlation there as well. Okay. 
uh, take a slightly different angle on this and, and would say that uh, certainly the behavior we're seeing out there mm-hmm. and uh, the increase in violence, the increase in prejudice and hatred, that's probably never went away, but has certainly risen to the surface. Uh, and it seems to be much more acceptable, if that's a good term for it, is, is much greater uh, in recent years. If, on the other hand, you asked if people think there's more meanness, they might say yes. But if they asked if you think you're being meaner, mm-hmm. They'd probably say no. It's always, I think, someone else who is being mean. Uh, and so I think the issue is not the meanness per se, but the divisiveness and the polarization that is occurring greatly. And that does lead to what we might interpret as meanness mm-hmm. in people's acts, not necessarily toward their own loved ones and their own in immediate community, because mm-hmm. I think they feel some safety there, right. but toward the other whoever that other may be, politically, religiously, country-wise, um, there, there's a sense of us versus them that's increased greatly. And, and the meanness, if we want to use that term, comes out through that division. All right. Certainly want to give you a chance to answer this question if you have one for us. Do you agree that we're getting meaner? It would, see, it would seem that people are meaner, but if I, if I reflect on it and think, like, why do I think that? Is it something from my my own personal experiences with people, I think the thing that comes to mind is what I, what I perceive through uh, what's on the internet and what's on television and what I observe in politics and so on. So it's, it's hard for me to say, like, do, do I experience people being mean in my actual life day to day? I don't know. Um, but I definitely get the sense there's a certain impression that I have mm-hmm. probably from what I observe in, in media mm-hmm. that, yeah, it seems like people are, there seems to be <laughs> I mean, what we see in like political discourse, obviously, uh, in the last couple election cycles, it seems to be amping up and getting a little bit less uh, civil. Okay. So in Brooks's article, he says that we are enmeshed, if you will, in a sort of emotional, relational, even spiritual crisis that has led to a dysfunction. And he simultaneously points to the fact that we're seeing a lot of hatred and anxiety, despair, and it seems to be cyclical. And so he says people are becoming more lonely and isolated, which means they become meaner, which means then they get lonelier, lonelier and even more isolated because no one wants to be around them. And then we get meaner. <laughs> and so he says that there's a cycle. And in this cycle, because we may not have our own um, happiness in ourselves, we begin to find camaraderie with others who are experiencing dysfunctional behaviors of meanness. What would you say to that? I mean, I think that's part, part, part of it, but I, I really believe it's bigger than just the other. Um, for example, it's the waitress is the waitress, the other it's the nurse, it's the teacher. It's the school administrator. I mean, uh, these folks that are uh, always been sort of the backbone of our our culture, our society, um, people in serving and helping professions are being really mistreated and are leaving the profession. Um, so that's an example of, yes, it's divisive. Yes, it's political. I made the point earlier that um, at the recent football team where FSU won, um, my son, who's a marching chief, they had to have extra security. I'm not saying it's only gators. It's just meanness. They had to have extra security <laughs> because they were being pelted. I mean, certain behaviors yeah. that were never acceptable um, 
are now acceptable. And am I getting meaner? I wonder about it. I think that of me, for one, I never used foul language and I find it coming out of my mouth because I'm hearing it all the time. <laughs> and so I'm even surprised at how I am personally being affected. I, I, I'm grateful for this conversation because mm -hmm. I think it's important to have and it's important that we, we do kind of turn the light on ourselves, um, each other and our own neighborhoods and communities and families, not just yeah. The, them. Yeah. Well, I think there's a greater social acceptability to being mean. Yes. We, and, and we justify it by saying, I, I have to be my authentic self. Oh. I, I have to be who I am and I get to express this. We have so many more ways of expressing that. And for all the good things about social media and being able to make connections and being able to find community and being able to experience positive things, we all know there is a, a negative underbelly to that. Yeah. That encourages that kind of negative behavior. And that, that seeps over into our non-digital lives because we're, our digital life is real life. That's a part of life. And I think there is this expectation of, well, resentment is going to breed resentment. And if I'm going to honestly express who I am, I'm going to express that resentment. If I'm being mistreated, well, of course, I'm going to mistreat in return. If I have to retaliate against somebody or if someone's trying to retaliate against me and it just compounds, it just avalanches that that ball of snow and ice just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we all get caught up in it. And I don't think a lot of times and Betsy, you make this point. A lot of times we don't even realize how caught up in it we are. That that's just what we're experiencing and that's what the discourse is. And so when we're looking for community, we're looking for people to reinforce that instead of contradict that. I think I want to go back to the idea of the other because, you know, to answer, you know, your your point, Betsy, while I agree, these are different level when you're talking yeah. about how you treat someone in a restaurant or right. or someone else. In a way, I would say, yes, they do become the other. Uh, and I think that speaks to something else, which yeah. is a, a degree that I think mentioned already of isolationism, that people are feeling very isolated in society today. Um, and that may be also why we tend to band together those of us who have groups, whether it's a political affiliation, religious or family. Um, we tend to band together with them and see that as our safe space. But for a lot of people, and even some people within those groups, they see me against the world. Everyone's out to get mm -hmm. me. Everybody is, you know, th th things are just not fair. They're not right. Everyone is being mean to me. Um, and that, I think, leads to that behavior of saying uh, it doesn't have to be on a huge scale. It can be just the way you treat someone. Uh, you may see them as the other because you feel you're somewhat better than them. You're right. They're wrong. They, they wronged you in what they did and you people can't take ownership for their own actions that's another part of it so the isolationism the banding together with like-minded people and the feeling of frustration and not taking ownership i think those are all key key issues so um betsy mentioned something earlier about you know a person behaves away and then we behave away in in what way is this cycle or this meanness that we express or experience sort of symbiotic, right? So I encounter an individual who is just mean and nasty for no reason, or maybe they have a reason because someone was mean and nasty to them and they're just in a bad mood. And now I'm in a bad mood and I go spread that abroad. 
And then if we take your comment, right, it's also become more acceptable to be this way because I'm being my authentic Mm -hmm. self. To what extent are we encouraging each other to be in this cycle? So I I think um, I I think about, again, like meanness, like what does that really mean (laughs) to be mean right Um, we needed to define let's define it so i think i I mean i I guess what kind of comes to my mind is people are mean when they're angry uh, when they're afraid you know i think Mm -hmm. of like an animal if they're backed into a corner they'll get mean sometimes again because they're afraid they feel threatened um or they're angry and and so at least you're right i think that there's a there's a possibility of of feeding into that depending on how we react um, and I think the tendency is when someone's mean to me is I, I take it personal, but I don't want to. And so I, I think recently I had an email every now and then I get every now and then some people don't like me, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that often, but sometimes but I got an email that was sort of critical. And, you know, I could take it personal or I could the way I tried to look at it was I really kind of felt bad for this person. He's got some real issues. He's really upset about some things that he can't control and really I can't. Um, and so I didn't take it personal. And so instead of responding in a mean way, which would have been easy, um, I might've satisfied my own desire to lash out or something like that. Instead, I, I kind of saw it as, cause I might see somebody with an illness. Like it would be mm-hmm. absurd for me to laugh at somebody or get mad if someone was sneezing cause they had a cold. Like, why are you sneezing? You know, stop sneezing. Well, this person can't help it. There's something going on inside of them. So when I don't take it personal, um, it's easy to not feed that anger and then I can be kind. And a lot of times you can disarm it. I find when someone's angry or being mean. That's a virtue teaching. You just taught a virtue. Thank you. Which, <laughs> which is kind of one of the reasons which, why like, we're here. Oh, yeah. which, yes. is part of which is part of, yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah. We're going to get to that. But I wanted to add when you, when you keep talking about, um, is there a sense of encouragement to mm-hmm. be, to be mean? I think if we're not careful, um, we miss that there may be, especially in the digital world, online, um, people jump on the bandwagon, you are encouraged to express yourself freely, and sometimes you get people encouraging you to be mean, Mm -hmm. not recognizing your influence, your job, the the reputation you carry, and there Mm -hmm. are people who take a moment of meanness and then have to retract words. And then uh, are doing a public apology or doing some type of retraction and too late somebody done screenshotted it, you know. <laughs> uh, you live in that world where you took a moment to forget about the consequence and the yeah. impact and what's really happening behind this is also I think people are losing sight of consequences and impacts of being mean or forgetting the need for kindness uh, and community. And so sometime, if you're not careful, uh, you could be pushing somebody on the edge of doing something that you may not think, uh, maybe thinking they're going to do, but they're going to take the wrong step. So I think we're missing impact and consequences and how our um, contribution into somebody's emotion could really turn out a negative way. And so I think we're forgetting about consequencing impact as well. And we have to remind each other um, on the impact of not being nice, kind, or patient. I, I think that makes 
a lot of sense. I think it's very important because if we try and put good out there, and 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 as you said, you know, these are your teaching values. These are words of encouragement. Take that perspective. It might change someone else's perspective. And by the same token, and the other, the flip side, you would uh, make someone angrier and more likely to lash out at someone else if you're not. On the other hand, there are many times when we are unintentionally doing something, and a lot of people don't give people the credit that they deserve. That what they're doing is not out of meanness or out of uh, of trying to hurt someone else, but out of just either just not knowing, or sometimes it might be an equally or even more valid perspective that the other person doesn't understand. And that's where we run into a lot of problems in our world today, especially when you get into the big questions, uh, politically, religiously, and so on. We have a different point of view. We may present things differently, but that if we just stopped and stepped back and listened and asked more questions, why are you saying that? Why? What do you mean by that? Instead of knee-jerk reaction, you said this, you meant this, and that's often not what the other person meant or said. I think we'd have a lot less of the reactivity. So I think communication and discussion yeah. and understanding is extremely important. Why I'm so glad to be in a conversation like this. All yeah, right. I want to bring up the, going back to the example Betsy gave, um, <laughs> and I, I don't want to be a little careful here because I was once an FSU student in those games, and I'm not going to, Hopefully, thankfully, there wasn't cell phones and videos back then because some of the behavior I participated <laughs> in at the swamp and at the joke. Um, it's probably a little embarrassing. Yeah. But what, like, what is it that happens there? Kind of analyzing that. Like, I remember specifically one game where this was after I was in college with a, with a quarterback, uh, Tim Tebow, who's a, who's a great guy, even though he's a Gator, um, lost. And he was crying on the bench when they lost this game. And a friend of mine who was a FSU fan made that their credit card took that image oh. and made it their credit card. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that you have a grown man crying that this became something that they celebrated. Mm -hmm. Like this man's like disappointment and sadness. Mm -hmm. Like how does this happen that you can go to a game perfectly like people who are just total strangers to you, that you would start pelting them with things or treat them like that. It's because in team sports, you don't, there is no reasoning there. It's this is my enemy. Like that's how it's pitted. And obviously it's ridiculous for fans to act this way. Um, but that's sort of the mindset that starts to happen. And I've heard our politics and other things in our society have been compared to that, this sort of mm -hmm. team sport. So only when I view the other as, as my enemy and someone, they, they lose their humanity, they lose their personhood, and then I can be mean to them or they, they're a threat or I must defeat mm -hmm. them or treat them in such a way. And I lose the compassion and empathy where I would take somebody's a disappointment and suffering and place it on. So I can look at it every time I purchase something, you know, and celebrate it. I mean, that's a strange behavior. Mm -hmm. It was funny to me when it happened uh, that this woman did this, but looking back, it's like, how does, how does this happen? And I think that's something important when we're talking about being mean, it's what? how are we viewing the person we're being mean to? Well, to build on that, what, what do we do when we look for community? We, we tend to look at, well, how this is people who are, are like me, who agree with me, and then everybody else is on the outside. And, and we push people away. We keep them on the outside. I, I think of a concept that, that C.S. Lewis developed called the, the inner ring, where, where we're always trying to look for that, that inner group, that inner, uh, you agree with me more, you're, you're like me more, and everybody else is on the outside. And part of the allure of that type of community is making sure everybody else stays on the outside. And so we treat them as enemies. And I think that kind of, of viewing of people and the way that we look at longing and, 
and belonging is rewarded in, in our culture, that that's almost expected and we play into that. And so if you don't agree with me on everything, if you're not there, if you are the other, I'm going to make sure that you stay there. Well, however, I need to do that. So, so I want to link that, Gary, to what Joe said about consequences, right? He was talking about consequences. Somebody, sometimes we don't think about the consequences, but it sounds like what's being said is that what was once punitive is now being rewarded. Right. So the behaviors that we would have frowned upon. Right. Now we put it out there. We get likes. We get loves. It's hilarious. It's entertaining. What has shifted that has allowed us to go from the things that are one were once punitive now being a source of entertainment and being rewarded? Well, I mean, one of the things that the article that David Brooks says, and we've touched on it already, is his belief that we have um, failed to teach virtues. We've Tell, uh, and, and sportsmanship would be one of the ways that we used to teach virtues to children, used to. right? Yeah. You, you help up the teammate that you accidentally tripped. You don't try to break their leg or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what have we done to fail our next generation as churches, schools, as people, as politicians? A whole lot, I suppose. I don't know what the, uh, the solution is, but, it, but there is you nailed it. Like what used to be frowned upon is now celebrated. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think it also links to this idea of individualism, mm-hmm. you know, authentic self, anything goes, as long as your truth, you be you. I hate that when somebody says, Oh, you be you. I don't know why, but it, you it rubs me you. the wrong way. You don't want to be you. I do want to be. Wanna be. <laughs> but we transfer that sense of individualism then to the group. And, and, and that, that group identity that informs our personal identity is now something that I have to defend just as fiercely as that personal identity. So I, I think you hit on something essential. We do have that sense of hyper-individualism that we have transferred to a group identity and it reinforces each other. Well, it mm-hmm. also makes us feel uh, isolated. Yes. So if, if I just have to be me... And I can be whoever I am in my authentic self, that that's very lonely. Mm-hmm. Right? So you want to you want to jump into yeah. a group. On the other hand, are you really part of that? And you it, want that group that mm-hmm. that will recognize that. And then that those who don't you're, again, you're, you're on the outside, you're othered. And I, I, that's good. Yeah, I, I think part of it also is is that there is such a sense of either lack of self-esteem, insecurity mm-hmm. that we find somehow pleasure in seeing other people suffering even Uh, never mind that we win and they lost and good game. And you know, someone has to win, someone has to lose that type of thing, but taking joy in it, taking joy in someone else suffering and, and not only in sports games, but in many other life and death Mm -hmm. questions where people are celebrating that. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a, parable from Jewish tradition based on the story of the exodus from Egypt. And when the Israelites had escaped to freedom after over 400 years of of slavery, they celebrated and sang praises to God. And the parable says that instead of God celebrating with him, God chastised them and said, my children are drowning and you're singing praises. Mm. What are you doing? Mm. And the lesson of that to me is very powerful. Even when you are victorious, even when you have won your freedom and you have every right to be 
happy for that. You don't rejoice in other people's suffering. suffering. Other God's children had to drown in order for you to be free. Mm. Uh, and as a result, Jews to this day at their seders, their Passover meals every year, remove 10 drops from the cup of wine, symbolizing joy, a full cup of joy. And we take 10 drops out for each of the 10 plagues on oh. Egypt to symbolize that our, our joy is lessened because others suffered during that. There needs to be more of that. Mm -hmm. There yeah. needs to be more of that. N number one, not taking pleasure or satisfaction in other people's suffering. And two, actually feeling some of that suffering of other people and not just saying, well, it's them or good. You know, they deserve it. And, and that it needs to be more of a, a, a mutual understanding. And the more we go back to the point of understanding, communicating with each other, understanding each other, knowing why we're doing and saying what we're saying, not just knee-jerk reacting to it, the more we're likely to do that. We don't have to look at other people failing or suffering for us to succeed or feel good. In fact, if they do, we should feel less good. So we are, we're all in this together. You want to say something? I'm saying I agree with um, Rabbi Paul. I think we do need to be reminded mm -hmm. of these moral virtues. I can remember being a young man, maybe 12, 13 years old, coming from a church service, riding in the car back seat with my godmother. And I had an adolescent moment of being mean. I saw a young man or a guy rolling, walking down the street um, in a neighborhood, uh, pushing a buggy. And I told everybody, hey, look at that. Guy pushing a buggy, you know, he's tore down, raggedy bum, you know. I just was talking, and she pulled the car over. I thought something was wrong with the car. I was wondering why we was pulling over to the side of the road. And um, she turned around and was in my face from the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. I'm in the back, and she was so close to me. I was mm. terrified. <laughs> um... And she gave me a lesson that stays with me to this day. And I felt it to the gut of my being. So a lesson, right? And we're, lesson. we're saying things like kindness and morality and how we ought to treat people, how we should see other people. Can these things be taught? For those who haven't read the article, um, one of the things that Brooke says is that there are many reasons that we can give to explain why people are getting meaner. And he points to the technology story. He says that social media is driving us all crazy and social media makes us behave this way. He said there's a sociology story that we've stopped participating in community organizations and therefore we have become a little bit more isolated. There's a demography story that says America, long a white dominated nation, is becoming much more diverse in who we are and as a country. And so that change has um, made many millions of white Americans just uncomfortable. And that's why we're getting meaner. He says that there's an economic story, that high levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people afraid and alienated and pessimistic. And that's why we are getting meaner. But then he says that to him, the answer is simple, that we are getting meaner because we no longer teach morality, that we inhabit a society 
that we no longer train, we're no longer trained in how to treat people with kindness and respect and with regard. And that it used to be the case that in our schools, in Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, in our community organizations, including our um, places of worship mm-hmm. and our faith communities, that we used to teach the thing that we no longer teach. What do you think about that? Are we teaching morality? Are we teaching people to be kind? I think, I, I think yes, it's important that people have moral values. Um, but I see a couple of issues with that. Mm-hmm. One is it's somewhat simplistic. Mm-hmm. Number one, I think back, I've, similar story to what Joe mentioned about, you know, as a child, I remember, you know, saying some things that were mean uh, and my mother telling me, you know, uh, not exactly the same way, but pointing out to me, that, you know, maybe that person doesn't have enough money to wear nice clothes or to do this or to do that. And I, it still sticks with me, like, like you said, Joe, to this day. Uh, it's an important lesson to see different perspectives. I think that people back, you know, back years ago, there was still meanness. Mm-hmm. Within the school, you know, everyone behaved. As soon as, you know, recess came, where you're walking home from school, mm-hmm. the meanness came out again. I experienced it. A lot of us experienced it. Um, so I don't know if teaching it is enough, um, per se. It's important. Um, the other thing is what do we mean by teaching it? You know, then we get into another issue of what does it mean to teach morality? Is it morality according to this religious teaching? Is it morality according to, you know, this, is it completely devoid of religious teaching and it Mm -hmm. should be, you know, that shouldn't enter into it. And then you get into further division and discussion. So what is morality? What does it mean? What's moral to some people may not be moral to other people. And is, that's another question. Is there ultimate morality? When we talk about God. What's the answer? Yeah. Is there? <laughs> is some, there? Ha- some have said that we've privatized this idea of morality. Exactly what you're saying, yeah. right? That if it's right for me, if I think it's right, then it's absolutely right. So a good question for faith leaders. Are there any like moral truth? This is a truth in the earth. I, well, I say yes. Well, right. Yes. Gary and I agree on this <laughs> yeah. one. I say yes as well. All right. What is it? I don't know, but I, <laughs> I, I really don't know. But one of my principles I'm going uh-huh. to say, and we was going to it earlier, and I'm, was being you cannot hurt me. And so that part of morality helps ground us. You know, being you cannot hurt me. And so when you start thinking about that, well, it can help me. It can challenge me. Yeah. It can uh, train me. But being you just can't hurt me. And I think that brings us back to the commonality of community collaboration. All right. Without going religious and spiritual, I just wanted to be relational uh, with morality. But I, I would say, I mean, absolutely, morality is, is essential. The, the, the issue, however, and I think something that Brooks completely elides over, I think he's aware of it, is that at least for me, you can't disassociate morality from the religious or the spiritual. The basis of morality is the religious and the spiritual. And living in a society where there is not a universally agreed upon understanding of the religious means that there cannot be a universally agreed upon understanding of the moral either. 
Which for me then means that you have to respect where other people are coming from. You have to dialogue, you have to listen, you have to do your best to communicate, get along, find areas of agreement and respect areas of disagreement. But again, those are all morals driven by my religious convictions. And so yes, those things ought to be taught, but we also have to have the ability to recognize that they're gonna be taught in different ways by different people and respect one another enough to, to agree where we agree and disagree where we disagree. I don't think there's any other way forward. There, there is no sense of a universal morality at this point. We can't go backward because we don't agree on fundamental <laughs> issues. Bessie's trying to get in. She's trying to get in. What do you uh, have to say? So much to say. Um, uh, yes, 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 all of that. But I wanted to just make a story, just a quick story. There was a politician years ago. He was very popular. He was maybe going to be president. And a photograph was taken of him with a woman on his lap that wasn't his wife. And he immediately was no longer a candidate. I mean, yes. we have we have yeah. have had shared understanding of morality in our culture. And we That's have true. agreed upon values in the past. And this is acceptable and this is not acceptable. And, and our votes showed it. So I think um, linking that to what you said earlier about, um, basically you said about, you know, what I do matters to somebody else because I'm an example, right? We are, we're moral <laughs> leaders. So a moral leader, the way a mortal, moral leader lives in the world actually is a lesson on morality. Oh, absolutely. Wow. It's either yeah. a, a lesson saying, doesn't matter. Or a lesson saying, I'm going to be this way so that I can be a better human being for the community. And maybe if you are like this, the community can be a better place. So I just didn't want to leave no, that alone. No, that's a great point. No, that's, <laughs> I, and I would absolutely agree. It's incumbent upon us who have a strong sense of morality to try to be that example, to, to try to live that out, and to try to model care that. Now. Well, and yeah. So I, yeah. I'd like to just say, um, to answer your question earlier, which I didn't think was a hard one, but do I believe that there's like moral truths? Then mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. I'm a Catholic priest and I'm not afraid <laughs> to say that I believe that like the 10 commandments. And I think I can say that with my, my Jewish friend next to me, um, is something that I think most people can get behind and see that there's something that's not just the set of rules, but like a moral reasoning, a mm -hmm. practical reasoning even there. And there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. It's very short. It's, it's one of his most, more difficult books to read, I'd say. But he, he goes through it, and he writes it in a philosophical perspective. And he talks about a universal morality. And he, he refers to it throughout the book as the Tao, like T-A-O. And he compiles a list at the back of the book that Christians, I mean, pagans, it's very fascinating. But you see this sort of similarity. But the, the thing is that all of these, none of these come from a discoveries in science or just pure reason, but there's a different type of intellect. There's something that, that's human here. There's something that he would argue in other books is, is comes from the divine, this sort of transcendent, this idea of values. And part of his book is that we cannot just question this or dismiss it. And I think what's happened in our country is that because we, we, as much as I love our nation and its founding and, and all it's good and it's bads and all that stuff, you know, we don't have a sort of grounding per se. I mean, if you look at our documents, our founding documents, 
All we really have there is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. One nation under God. One nation under God. But what does that all mean? And how does that play out? And it's, we're left to, to figure that out. So not having anything that grounds us, any kind of code or whatever, I think, I think we're seeing the fruits of that. I don't know if it's proposing, I have an idea uh, to solve that necessarily, but I think what we're seeing when we kind of open it up and just, hey, everyone do what you want, um, we, don't, we don't have that thing that's binding us together, a narrative, right. a goal, values. I think this is where we're seeing kind of the confusion and, and, the, and despair. the arguments. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A couple of things. I wanted to go back, um, but before that... Uh, I, I don't want to open a huge can of worms, but you know, we talk about the Ten Commandments. Of course, I agree. Ten Commandments are important, but it's the interpretation of them that sure. leads to problems. Sure. Um, so do not murder. What does it mean? What are things, you know, without bringing up very hot topics, examples, what some people would consider murder, other people would not yeah. consider murder. Uh, it, that becomes, that those are both moral mm-hmm. issues and both sides have ethical issues that they're considering uh, when they're talking about, you know, dance around it and talking about abortion, for example, they are talking about different values um, from different sides of the same issue. Not stealing. What if someone is desperately in need of food and that's their only way of getting food to survive or their family? Is that stealing? It is stealing, but there's something more to it. So, so is there ultimate, are there ultimate rules? So that's number one. That could be a whole nother discussion. Number two, I wanted to go back to what Joe was saying before about the U, was it UBU or your being you doesn't hurt me. Yeah. And while I, I, I hate to have to say this because I feel I want to agree with that, I, I have very con- concerns with that because I am sitting here as a, as a Jewish person as well right. as an American who, if you say that to a huge number of people in the world today, them being them yeah. does hurt me. Because if they had their way, I'd be dead and my whole family and right. community would be dead. And so would pretty much all of us because they, you know, they don't believe in that. So UBU doesn't hurt me. You cannot, cannot hurt me. Yeah. Well, it can. Um, but yeah, theoretically, <laughs> but in reality, it can. Yes. Uh, what the part of, I definitely agree with and really want to cling to is UBU as long as being you isn't hurting anyone else. You know, live and let live, not live and let die. Right. You know, live that's, that's and right. let someone else, you know, just leave people alone to do their own thing. And that's if that their thing is to go killing everybody, that's not good. That's right. not moral. Correct. And it certainly, it hurts us. So we have to be very careful uh, because this is part of, you know, I think American culture too, individualism and, mm-hmm. and all that. And I believe very much in it and freedom of, you know, choice and things like that. But... At times, there are times when people abuse that. And that, to me, is where democracy, you know, everyone can, you know, free speech. But if the speech is har- harming people and, right. and, and getting people to go out and kill, right. that's, that shouldn't be allowed Absolutely. in a de- democratic system. Um, if it's just speaking out, sure, they have a right to speak out. So I have a question. We've been talking, right, a lot about America and we're talking democracy, communities. And we all are pretty much representing different kinds of faith traditions. And we were talking a moment ago just about, you know, is there an agreed upon morality, an agreed upon way of behavior? When we look at just our faith communities, when you think about your faith community, are people who tend to agree on some things and how we should live? Do you think they're getting meaner in your faith community? 
Maybe not yours. <laughs> it's somebody else's <laughs> that you see. <laughs> my, my, my people Maybe not your folk. Yeah, my people are perfect. They're perfect. Yeah, just oh, like that's me. amazing. No, they, <laughs> I, I would definitely say that even in, in the Catholic Church. I think people probably have seen this um, in the news. There's controversy and arguments, but there's been like that in Christianity from the beginning. Read the New Testament. So, yeah. but I do see, like I've mentioned earlier, someone sending me some emails. We saw a lot of that during the pandemic. A lot of, that was a really fun time. Don't you all miss that? Miss the, uh, I miss the arguing, you know, that's what I miss the most of the pandemic. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, our, our churches aren't isolated. Our people aren't isolated because they're part of this culture and part of this world. And so they're being, you know, they're, they're part of it too. And kind of co-opted into this ideological stuff and division and everything else. So I'm, I'm seeing some meanness. Absolutely. When, when I'm viewed as an enemy, that can happen. Yeah. That's the thing, right? When I'm viewed like that, or my parishioners see other parishioners as enemies, um, and not as as yeah. brothers, as sisters, then you're going to see meanness. Do you think? Do you all think that sometimes our faith communities teach us to view other people as enemies? Sometimes. The the culture is an atmosphere that we all breathe, and and now we there are multiple cultures, and as as we think about that, our faith communities are their own miniature cultures. But if we think of American culture, we're we're breathing in all of these things. We cannot help but be affected by the, the atmospheres that we inhabit. And and yes, I think that the, the cultural strengthening of this idea that we have to band together and push everybody else out, and that if you're on the inside, you're my friend. If you're on the outside, you're my enemy. Cannot help but impact mm-hmm. our faith communities mm-hmm. and has. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that. I, I think we could probably all share similar anecdotes about how we've, we've probably had people who've left our faith communities because we haven't been adamant enough mm-hmm. about the other. So they haven't felt like they've belonged enough. And so they're going to go find someplace else that, that senses that tighter. I think that's a cultural value. And that's certainly something that I would say in, over my close to 20 years of ministry, I think has increased dramatically over the last yeah. few years. And, and that is part of that. That is a cultural impact. What, what I'm always trying to help our people to remember is that even as we're impacted by culture, we have to transcend that and go out and, and impact culture in the name of Christ as, as Christians. And that's what we're called to do. But we have to recognize that we're being impacted by culture. That, that, that happens. Like the lack of respect for the authority of yes. the pastoral yeah. office. That's a big one. Or the lack of respect for the teacher in the classroom. You know, going back to the idea that uh, certain, certain roles were afforded a certain respectability and uh, an expectation of behavior that the culture placed yeah. upon it. Um, and along with that came, came some authority that was intended to be used, like we're trying to use it tonight to bring people together and to understand others. But when the um, congregations, whatever they might be, uh, began to be, like you said, breathing in the kind of uh, air that we breathe now, I mean, the lack of respect for authority, lack of respect for office, lack of respect for humanity, da 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 
it does have an impact. And uh, what I am doing now, and this isn't, isn't really meant to be a commercial, but I am a spiritual director <laughs> and I see clients and a lot of my, the people that I work with are clergy yeah. and they're heartbroken. It's not like it used to be. <laughs> it's harder all the time. Yeah. It is a struggle for clergy to, yeah. to, you know, you want a certain degree of call it authority because, you know, spent a lot of time studying and a lot of time practicing and put our hearts and souls into what we do. Um, on the other hand, I come from a more liberal form of religious practice. Um, sometimes I struggle with the, the dogmatic aspect of religion. While I respect the, the, the fact that um, religion has dogma and it does have these set of beliefs and respect it for those who want to believe it, when it stretches to, if you don't believe this, you're wrong, and other people outside of our particular congregation or you know, group, religious group, don't believe it, it's wrong. I think there are multiple truths. I've said it before, no one has a monopoly on the truth. We all have different truths with a small T um, and different things that are meaningful. They don't have to be literally true, and there's not one approach to God or to morality. Um, there may be some that aren't legitimate, but there are many different legitimate ones. Um, so that, that's a very important thing. The other thing I think is that it becomes problematic is, uh, is when, and I really try to avoid it in my rabbinate and my pulpit, is to be, when people become overly political mm -hmm. and use the pulpit as a political you know, um, place to stand up and, and give views. That's, to me, not what religion is about. Yes, there are ethics, there are morality, there are values that should be taught, but not in terms of politics. Um, and that's when it becomes very divisive, too. So I will say, I, I, I don't want to give a sermon where half the congregation gets up and applauds, and the other half gets up and walks out. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to give a sermon that teaches and maybe inspires and, and gives people food for thought but not to be divisive. So I really try and avoid those types of things. And I think that's part of, um, part of the, the issue that we're dealing with a lot in our societies in terms of the meanness. Okay. So I want to get to something. Um, first, I want to throw out the, um, a term because I found it fascinating that Brooks uses. He says that we have become or are becoming vulnerable, vulnerable narcissists. Vulnerable narcissists. He said not like regular narcissists. Um, we are all about ourselves and, um, overconfident, but not like the usual narcissist that that's pretty much what it is. But the vulnerable part of it is that we are all about ourselves. And also we are anxious. We're insecure. We are avoidant, which makes us the worst kinds of narcissists yeah. because then we begin to actually scan for signs of disrespect so that we can rally towards it, right? To keep it off of ourselves. But my question, or and my question for us this evening is, what is the fix? Is there a fix? We are here with our faith leaders. How do we get better as a community? Pastor cares upon me because I care for you. Yep. I mean, to me, that's the fix. I mean, that that is, that's, that, and that's, for me, the, the call to follow Jesus Christ, that's the fix. Okay. I was thinking about what you shared with me, uh, and it was similar to what Tim said. Um, forgive them. They know what 
Not they do. Want me to say it? Yeah, you say it. It's your saying. <laughs> so we had it's lunch, and I, t- I told um, Betsy that my saying often, I, I have intentionally practiced resisting the urge to get offended because I realize that often it's not even about me. It's something going on in the individual. And I will repeat to myself, God, forgive them for they know not what they are doing even when I think they absolutely know what they're doing because in our deepest selves, we are sometimes too broken to know. And I recite that all. And I wrote it down and it's, it's trying, I'm trying to incorporate it as one of my mantras. And that's an example of virtue teaching and lessons um, that can change your life. Okay. You know, I think it starts with, you know, we have to model that, you know, as, as leaders, um, as best as we can, you know, and it's hard. I think, you know, sometimes we, and I don't mean to like have a pity party for us involved in <laughs> ministry, but sometimes people are, are rough on us, you know, and, and critical and so on. But I think we have to, to really resist the urge to take it personal and to realize um, that this is, you know, if someone's coming at us, if someone's being mean, again, I, I think def- you can disarm them by not being mean back. And, and what I mean by, and this is a risky thing, because you're like again, if you're using the analogy of the dog in the corner, um, what, what do you do normally? You can back off, or you can show him your hands, and hopefully he won't bite him. But he might, you uh-huh. know. And that's sort of the thing is, if someone's attacking me or angry at me, a lot of times I just I ask ask them like, "Why are you angry at me?" And if you ask a question like that, you know, or you say, you know, you're, you're I don't understand what I did to hurt you, you know, that 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 just disarms people. It's hard to fight a pillow. But if I get, if I'm worried about my pride and well, yeah. I'm this person and you, how dare you talk to me like that, which I'm not saying I haven't never done before as I have, but if I, if I can remember just to, you know, again, I take this person, what's going on with this person? I feel bad for them. Like, what can I do to help them? They can really, they can really solve a lot of problems. So I think modeling it, I can't control what other people do. I mean, I had to, I had to let go of that a while ago. I can't control what's going on in Washington or and around the world, but what I can do is, is how do I treat people and how do I model that, hopefully for my parishioners? I think, I think a lot of it just goes back to understanding one another, but we have to take a step back before we say that, what, what leads to understanding, and that would be, I think, communication, first of all, to be able to openly, honestly communicate, not critically, not to, to pick apart each other's views or to find fault, but to actually listen, that's very hard. I certainly will say it's hard for me to do often, personally, and in terms of leadership. Um, but it's very important, you know, within my congregation uh, and, and in my life in general, to, to listen to someone else and hear what they have to say. And again, not just react to what um, they, I, I think they're saying or what I'm assuming or what I'm basing on my experiences. And once we listen and communicate, we might learn more about each other and start understanding each other more. We may not agree on everything, but at least we'll have a more respect for where the other is coming from. Um, and then that ultimately leads to the main word, which is trust. And that is, you know, building a sense of trust from one individual to another, from one group to another, uh, whatever part of life it's in. If we can learn to trust each other, that's very hard. Um, but to rebuild that trust uh, I think that's what's been eroded. And people don't trust anything. They don't trust the media. They don't trust the other political party. They don't trust the other religion, the other country, the other this or that. Um, they may not even trust people in their lives because they've been hurt by someone. Um, it, we need to rebuild that. 
much easier said than done, but crucially important. Great. Um, my, my thoughts would be, uh, I put in a phrase of just dare to love, you know, dare to love. And I know that could mean something different in every context, but I think that phrase for me that I try to practice and model is just dare to love. When I'm faced with a, a person who I feel is mean or when I feel like I want to be mean, right? Because those, those things happen. And, um, and I just say dare to love, Joe. And that makes me become a little more uh, innovative on what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, I'm going to approach it. And so that's my phrase, dare to love. And that helps me navigate through the emotions, navigate through what I may feel is a threat, right? But what do I need to do here to love that person? What is that safe context? It just helps me. So it takes courage to love. I think it takes vulnerability. It takes intentionality. I'm reminded of a saying that pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And perhaps we have become meaner because we are holding pain and maybe we don't know what to do with that pain. And perhaps as we decenter ourselves and begin to center others, then we can dare to love and love in a way that becomes mutually healing, right? Healing for others, healing for ourselves. Can we teach it? Anybody else want to answer the, can we teach it? Because I would love for us to go out with this sense of hope, right? And not despair that so many things seem like they're going crazy, but what can we do individually to shift this culture that we're agreeing is happening. I think that the way to teach it is by doing it and mm-hmm. being it. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I'm old enough to remember the movie Pay It Forward, uh, where you know one young student uh, decides to do something good for someone else mm-hmm. without any reward in return. The only thing the person asks is to pay it forward. They need to do something in the same way for someone else, and it can potentially change the community and the world if everyone did that, if everyone took something and continued. And by the same token, if we do something mean, then it could continue and the ripples keep going out. So I think demonstrating love, demonstrating caring, demonstrating trust and understanding is the best way to teach it, not by lessons and not by, you know, um, you know, quotations and things like that, but by actual acts of love and if we demonstrate it it doesn't always stick it doesn't always go but the more love we put out there the more love there is in the world and 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 uh, the more hate and meanness we put out there the more hate and meanness there is in the world so we need to start with ourselves and hope that others follow suit talk about mother Teresa for a moment she Mm -hmm. you know this is a woman who is is a catholic nun um, went to Calcutta and other poor areas and saw people there who were lying on the street dying and neglected and abandoned really because of, because of belief systems, because of values. It wasn't an accident. Um, and, but she saw Christ in these people. She, because she believed that God became a man, therefore every human being had a value that is, we can't place a number on it. Every human being is worth more than the universe. So whether these people were Christian or not, she saw something in them divine 
and took care of them. Um, people who were in pretty bad shape, you know, taking care of bathing them, cleaning them, nursing them, whether they convert or not had nothing to do with that. It was her seeing the divine in that. So I think right there, um, and I don't, you know, I know people don't, aren't, aren't going to believe in Christianity necessarily. But I think starting with that, to see the value in the human being, the human person will change how we treat one another. And even human secularists would agree with that point, that a human dignity and, the, and human value is of great worth. Um, they just might not be able to explain how they arrive at that, but okay. Uh, well, I'm just saying, it, it doesn't need <laughs> I just have to, to throw that out of there, I'm sorry. No, yeah. Well, you know I agree with <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, but yeah. I don't want to leave out our friends that have similar values, mm-hmm. even if they get there differently. I mean, I'm not afraid to say some things are wrong and some things are right. Like, I mean, I think I'm just not afraid to say that. Um, for example, I mean, I think anti-Semitism is wrong. I don't think there's a truth out there that anti-Semitism is okay. Like, I think it's okay to say things like that. And, yeah. you know, I, that's what I believe as a priest. Not that I live it perfectly, but I'm not afraid to say that, you know. <laughs> but virtue can I live, absolutely I, be taught and amen. shared yes, yeah. and modeled. Can. It absolutely can. And it is happening. It is. And it is happening. And, and oftentimes we don't pay attention to the good that's happening because we're so overwhelmed by the bad. So as we are wrapping up then and talking about <laughs> virtue and all the things, the thing that comes to mind for me is what Gandhi says, right? Said, be the change that we want to see in the world. That is how we get to model. We are the change that we want to see in the world. And then there is an African proverb that says, I am because we are, because we are, therefore I am. And when we begin to see each other as community, then we can end this cycle of violence. So before we invite the studio audience to ask us questions, um, I just want to take a moment to thank those who are listening by radio for tuning in to God Squad's Ending the Cycle of Mean. And the full program with questions from the audience will continue on Facebook after a short break and will also be archived online. So on behalf of Village Square, on behalf of WFSU, I want to say thank you for being here. We hope you will join us soon. Good night. Nathan back here with you and I have to confess you had me at David Brooks (laughs) in all seriousness bringing in these wonderful ministers and leaders from the God Squad talking about the kinds of keen sociological questions that a thinker like David Brooks explores basic questions like why have Americans become so sad or why have Americans become so mean and what can we do about it? It was all just such a great recipe for a timely and fruitful conversation. Well, just a couple things in particular, I really appreciated how Latricia framed the conversation around these straightforward questions. What helps me is simply keeping such important problems top of mind. What also helps in digesting this type of candid informed conversation is to remember that we each can participate in making things better including me but that it's a practice 
an actual practice, recognizing my own tendency to not give others the benefit of the doubt, catching uh, my own proclivity to succumb to a sense of helplessness or indulge in impulse to react out of meanness that I somehow justify that come <laughs> is this one really caught me concept of being a vulnerable narcissist. Could that be me? If not all the time, perhaps just certain moments and circumstances. Again, it's a practice to practice recognizing those less than angelic impulses and practice the art of Pastor Joe Davis, I love the way you put it, dare to love. It's just bullseye, <laughs> you know, especially when faced with someone who's mean or when I feel that meanness rising up in me. Instead, dare to love. Before we close out, if this conversation was fruitful for you and you'd like to hear another complimentary conversation we're involved in another program called talking politics and religion without killing each other and you can find it on all the major podcast apps real easy way to find us is politics and religion.us it's www.politicsandreligion.us in particular there is an interview that we did with david brooks uh, that's why i'm bringing it up right now it was a really wonderful conversation about his recent book, his newest book called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Yeah, if this is the kind of thing that you'd like to explore further, I'd recommend David's book. Uh, and, um, you know, take a look at that conversation on talk of politics and religion without killing each other. Again, it's www.politicsandreligion.us. And now it is time to close out. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. And while you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for that sign up box. There's so much going on, so many great programs, and we'd love to have you to be a part of it. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to this special edition of God Squad at Night, recorded live at WFSU Studio. And until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It changes everything. And remember what Pastor Joe said, dare to love. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. <laughs>